Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you are listening to episode number 16. Today we are joined by Dan Enfault, Big Buck Serial Killer. Dan's going to share how to hunt mature buck bedding on high-pressured public land and share a great stalking story of how he tagged out on a Wisconsin monster. All right, welcome to the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 16, where today we are joined by Dan Enfault. Really looking forward to having a conversation with Dan. Of course, he is known across the whitetail landscape as the Big Buck Serial Killer. He uh, gains that name, honestly. He does it, obviously, or maybe not so obviously, but he does it on uh, typically public land that is uh, very high pressure. Um, so the fact that he's able to take the type of animals that he's been taking over the course of his hunting career and those type of elements speaks to his uh, his ability to get after a whitetail and, uh, and, and kind of think through things uh, strategically and put himself in good positions to try to make uh, – to, to make good shots and make kill shots, and he's got a wall of uh, of, of mounts to show for it. But before we uh, get to uh, dialing Dan in and, and starting that conversation, uh, as usual, I am joined by my esteemed colleague, Phil Marchak. How's it going, man? It's going. It's got, uh, it's busy. A lot of things going on uh, on, on this end. Um, but, you know, it's pretty pretty typical from week to week anyway, so when, when are you not busy? Yeah, yeah, I hear that. It's uh man, I'll tell you what, the uh the Christmas break trying to roll back into into work mode, that's uh oh, spoiled. Spoiled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm I think we're both kind of in the same boat, but uh you know, where I work closes down for the week in between every year. So I get that nice kind of break off. So this year, you know, with the the holiday, uh, the Christmas holiday being on a Sunday, of course you get that weekend plus the whole week and then the following weekend. So it was a nice, uh, you guys had Monday too, didn't you? After New Year's. Yeah, we did have Monday after New Year's too. That was a, an observed holiday. So that was, uh, it was a nice break. It made it pretty difficult to get back. So I've been struggling trying to get into the, the routine, but you're busy on all kinds of fronts, man. You got all kinds of crazy going on at your house. Oh man, yeah, we're we're about six weeks until the baby's due. We're we're breaking ground on the basement reno uh, in a couple days. Uh, in fact, I I I was just uh, wrapping up cleaning out my gun safe uh, because I'm gonna send pretty much all my firearms back up to my folks. Um, 
you know, the safe's not leaving the garage, uh, so I don't want to leave the guns in there either. But right, definitely don't want to have them here unlocked as well. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna put them back up with my folks for for a little bit until the reno's done. Yeah, yeah, I know we we have a little bit of catching up to do, man, because we haven't really. I was just thinking before we jumped on, we haven't really spoke, really like a lot really and since the holiday like i don't think we've had i don't think we've put out a podcast where the two of us have actually been on the podcast at the same time um do you do you smell that i smell something what's that i think i smell an us podcast coming up i think there there very well could be an us (laughs) podcast in the very in the very near future we got some things to talk about wait a second we're just gonna see our numbers drastically drop now because we said (laughs) actually yeah yeah for sure it's like the the downloads have been growing until we get to that to that one then they they taper off quite a bit i've been busy i've been busy with uh of course getting back in the swing of things with work and uh but I know we had to delay us jumping on the uh, on the podcast here this afternoon because my daughter is now fully entrenched in in basketball in elementary school basketball, which is a uh, um let's call it painful. I want to I want to hear about this because you you mentioned the basketball thing before when I when I texted you earlier saying that uh, asking when we're going to do this and you said well I'm at Anna's basketball game right now and I'm like. I got to hear more about this. Yeah. So, so she's, she, she likes all sports for the, for the most part. She just likes to be active, which is, which is great, which, you know, I'm, I'm happy that she enjoys that type of stuff. Sure. Totally. But let's just say, you know, my wife and I are both, you know, what you would call vertically challenged. So preaching to the choir, brother. Yeah, I know. I know. Right. (laughs) Um, so I, I don't think basketball is in her, um, in her future in a, in a, in a, in a big way. Now Listen, the one, there's a Muggsy Bogues in all of us. Right okay? now. Well, the saving grace is this, right? So uh, my wife, my wife, Megan, her, her dad, you know, my, my father-in-law who I do a, you know, a lot of hunting with and spend a lot of time with, he is a basketball coach has been, uh, he retired from coaching, I think two, maybe three years ago. So I want to say he's probably coached basketball for 40 plus years. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, in our area growing up, like he held the record for the most points scored in the county for a bunch of years. And this was even prior to like the three point line being instituted. And he and he's vertically challenged. So his was all, you know, jump shots. Um, so he probably would have extended that uh, that points uh, total if the uh, if they actually had a, a three point line. I'm pretty sure he actually played whenever they had a peach basket at each end. Without <laughs> and 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 a rock and a, and a rock, yeah. <laughs> Dribbling was extensively hard, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, so the first game was last week, and um, you know, we don't watch basketball at the house. I'm not a huge basketball fan. It's like I watch, you know, I'm a big NFL football fan. You know, when I'm not, you know, in the White Tail Woods on the weekends, it's like I'm usually we watch, watching. We watch Steelers, Penguins, and Pirates. That's it, right? Pretty much. <laughs> And uh, I do watch a little college football, but I don't watch nearly as much as I used to. And, you know, the other sports that I really follow a lot is college wrestling because I grew up wrestling. So I usually follow Penn State pretty closely. Um, And uh, so we don't really ever have basketball in the the house. And so it's one of those things where she went to start playing basketball just because, you know, she knows her her grandpa coached basketball and um, stuff like that. And so she wanted to try it and. So she went to try it and it's like, I'm watching her play her first game. Like I went to like a practice or two and was watching her. Um, 
and uh, you know they're just going through like drills and stuff like that, teaching them how to dribble and shoot and all that kind of stuff. And you get to a game where like the concept of the game kind of comes into play, right? Like the theory of the game, like this is how it's played. There's offense, there's defense, and you're guarding and it's transitions and stuff like that. And it was really clear that we've never had a basketball game on in our house because the concept of off- offense and defense was completely lost on her. Um, to where, you know, she was guarding the girl who was guarding her whenever her team had the ball. So mm, nice. it was like she just played defense the whole time, which her defense is pretty solid. Like she's small and scrappy. Listen, did she block her own teammate's shot? No. Usually when they were on offense, like she was like out, like, you know, what you would call like the wing. But the, mm-hmm. but in elementary school basketball, everyone is around the ball, which is right underneath the rim. <laughs> so she was open. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> like um, soccer. Yeah. Up until a certain age group, right? <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we just, all we also had a our, mass a group of kids following the ball wherever it goes. Uh, yeah, yeah, we had our we had our time with soccer. Um so I was familiar with that. So, you know, my wife being the the great parent that she is, she decided to take Anna to a couple uh local, you know, the our school district uh, girls high school basketball games and nice. have Anna kind of watch just so she could kind of see how the games played and today it was like a light went off. She actually shot a basket, didn't make it. She missed, but that was that was okay. And she actually had a rebound, and she actually, you know, got the ball a couple times and dribbled up the court. She actually is really good dribbling and and has good you know good handle, if you will. Nice and uh, and passed quick, and she's quick learner. Pre- yeah, she's pretty good at passing, and she actually had an assist tonight. So today was like a completely like a complete turnaround where I was like, oh wow, she actually understands the concept of the game now, which is kind of cool. Boom. Yeah. So that's been, you know, what I've been kind of, kind of busy with, but you know, how was, uh, how was your Christmas, man? What was, uh, did you get anything, uh, anything interesting hunting related? Did you, uh, did you get, I, a- I, actually I did, I did. Um, so I did get, uh, just generally, I got a bunch of Cabela's gift cards, which nice. was intentional. Yeah. I, 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 people are asking me and, and I'm like, you know, I, I don't want to get super specific with people. So. Cabell's gift cards is is pretty legit and uh, it allows me to get what I need to get. Uh, but I did get one thing that was very specific. Um, I got it's for my my Remington 700. Uh, I have a 308, and it's my primary uh, deer rifle. And I got a Timney adjustable two stage trigger. Nice. Yeah. Look at you, it, all fancy. It breaks like none other. It's awesome. Nice. I, I haven't I've I've uh, done a couple of dry fires just to just to give it a quick roll. I haven't shot it yet, but uh I am I am excited about it. Nice. Yeah. The uh I mean I usually kind of follow the same suit. Like I don't get real specific, you know, and you know if, if folks get me some gift cards, they kind of know that that's what it is that I that I want. I did get one really cool gift. So, like I'm a terrible gift giver, like by nature. Like I'm terrible at it. Like for for my wife's birthday this year, I rut hunted in Ohio. That was my gift. So like if that's the, that's kind of, you you basically, you gave her the gift of, of leaving her alone. Pretty much. Yeah. That's how I looked at it. It, It's not, it's not bad. Yeah. I mean, it it could be worse. We had, we had very different views on whether or not that was a good gift or not. So (laughs) I I could probably see where those views would come into play here. Right. Right. So, so I'm just not a great gift giver. So, you know, for Christmas, you know, my wife gets the the usual mom slash wife gift, you know, of like some type of like spa treatment, massage, mm-hmm. like yep. nice, comfortable robes some yep. nice, like, you know, uh, organic and natural teas and, you know, stuff like that, that she likes. But it's like I don't go too far outside the box. You know, my wife, on the other hand, is like 
one of the best gift givers of like all time. Like yeah, every you, gift, you totally married up, dude. Yeah. She, <laughs> well, and it's not necessarily from like a monetary value point of view. Like she just gives very meaningful and thoughtful gifts where she, like she really knows the person that she's gifting and it's like in whatever she gives them, it's like, it's full of meaning and, right. you know, just like sincerity. And like, you know, for me, it's like, what's the, what's the dollar range? 25 to $75. I spent $75. Here you go. Like that's my, <laughs> that's kind of my <laughs> approach. Um, so what she got me was probably one of the best gifts, gifts I've ever gotten. So there was an article that I wrote and I want to say, I think it's called the first hunt. Oh, what, I know. I know. I know. It's good. Yeah. Go so it was, it was an article that I wrote right after I took Anna on her first, uh, legit, hunting outing, you know, and I took her out for a spring gobbler hunt last year. And it was right at the end of May because we had terrible weather, like most of the, most of turkey season last year. And it was just hard to get her out because I didn't want it to be wet or cold. And, you know, I didn't want her to have a miserable time. I wanted her to enjoy it. So she'd want to continue to do it. So it was like, it was the very last weekend of turkey season that actually was a good weekend to go out. The weather was good. It was a little warm, but in the morning wasn't too bad. And I wrote this article about it and I think it came out in like June um, you know, 2016, I think is whenever I put it out, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, and it was one of those things where I started writing it really from the perspective of taking Anna on her first hunt. But then it started, as I was writing it, I started thinking about like the first hunts that I went on with my dad and like how meaningful it was, you know, to me years later that he took the time to kind of teach me about hunting and bestow that hunting heritage, you know, or pass it down to me and, and so forth. Right. And it's one of those articles that you write where, you know, I look back at it and I'm like, I'm really proud of the article that I wrote because it's full of meaning. You know, there's no hunting strategy. It's nothing that it's just really me writing a meaning meaning meaningful article about my experiences with my daughter and then reminiscing about my experiences with my father. Right. And pa- passing down uh pastime tradition. Right. Right. So, you know, my wife being the great gift giver that she is, um, knew that that article meant a lot to me. So she actually took that article and she sent it to an artist that she found and had him, uh, scribe, uh, two large pieces of wood, like, and burn the entire article into the wood with an awesome, scene at the bottom of it um of like elk and deer and just like a wildlife scene and gave yeah. that to me for for christmas that's awesome and uh yeah yeah it was pretty it pretty awesome great gift um one of my favorite things that i've i've ever gotten um so yeah she's a great gift gifter uh giver and i am not that is the moral of the story there yeah, she totally <laughs> blew my gift out of the water so. yeah actually i was gonna say like you know i'm, I'm actually partaking of the gift that you gave me which is Bang. a a bottle of Pittsburgh's finest Weigel uh, bourbon. So thank you. Your yes, gift, your gift is coming. We've just not seen each other since uh, since Christmas. Well, we'll rectify that very soon. Yeah, yeah. Because well, you know, the other topic is is like during during Christmas. One of my favorite parts of Christmas is the fact that I have a nice chunk of time off from work. So it actually lets me have an opportunity to go out and do a fair amount of late season hunting, which was nice. So I got out three days uh, for late season and actually saw a couple shooters, man, which was really cool on the, on the family farm. I think, I think I hunted three hunts on that farm all, all year prior to that. Cause most of my time was spent in Ohio, um, during my birthday, right? For my wife's birthday. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah exactly. Let's go ahead. <laughs> let's go ahead and make sure we twist the knife a little more there. Um, you, when we all, when we all get together again, you know, I'm going to bring that up. Like we'll be, we'll be a couple of whiskeys deep and I'll be like, Oh, Megan, ah, how was your birthday? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was awesome. I saw some bucks sparring on your birthday. It was killer. Um, 
But uh, the hunts were good at the farm here for for late season, which I've always said like late season for whatever reason is one of my favorite times to hunt because especially at the farm there's nobody there's nobody there usually right. Um, so I have free reign, um, and it's just enough time after rifle season has you know been out that the deer start you know slowly showing back up, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and that was the case this year. You know, it's like I showed up and. Uh, there was a spot I was kind of scoping. I put a put a new food plot in last year that was mainly focused on, you know, there was a some power plant that had some soybeans and stuff. And I've explained this in an earlier podcast. That was kind of a, a menagerie of, you know, summer and early season uh, food. And right, then I did right. an overseed of, of, uh, of turnips, um, which, uh, you know, obviously was going to pay dividends once the, the cold hit and the, the tops, you know, the sugar went to the tops and the deer ate those off. But then in late season, it was really all about the bulbs that were still on the ground, you know, and right. the last source of food available. And so it was really one of the only easy access food sources in the area because all the other farmers crops are off and the rest of everything else is clover and alfalfa around us as far as what we have as a food plot and what the adjacent farmers have. Um, so we really had the only late season food source around. So I kind of set up, um, next to some thick stuff off that food source and, uh, and uh, what I thought was going to happen, happened. I had a herd, you know, a crew of uh, deer roll through like right before dark, which is what I kind of anticipated. And uh, I saw eight deer the, f- not, was it the first night? No, the first night I sat, actually I sat off of a different food source the first night and I saw eight deer, but they were all not close enough. And they were close enough. I could see that they were all does. So nothing that night. And then right. I moved locations the second night um, against this other food source that had the, the turnips in it and stuff. And, uh, I saw eight deer come through, um, of those eight, four were bucks. And of those four, two were, um, for sure shooters. One was pretty nice for, for the area, at least, you know, for Pennsylvania. Um, and then, uh, I kind of set up, um, high or higher up on this ridge top, or I guess it was, it wasn't a ridge top really. It's just like, there's a, there's a deep cut in between these, um, I guess you could call them ridges, but it's. The, the fields all in this area on our farm kind of sit up high and then, you know, and then there's valleys like kind of down below all the fields. And so I was sitting off like down and kind of off one of the edges of the fields uh, where I couldn't really, couldn't see into the field, but I wasn't at the, the, the hollow floor necessarily um, kind of do an observation set. Cause a lot of the deer like to run that bottom of that hollow up um, and toward the, and toward those food sources up there. Uh, so I sat up far enough to where I could just kind of do an observation set so I didn't get blown out and just to kind of see if what I thought was true was true. And it was, and they were using it. So the next day I went in and uh, moved my stand probably about 40, 50 yards closer. And then wouldn't you know it, they came up out up above me <laughs> that uh, night. Yeah. So as, they pulled, as luck would have it. Yeah. They pulled the old switcheroo on me, but <laughs> you know, the, I, you, I, zig, you zigged when you should have zagged. Yeah. But the, you know, the moral of the story really for me was that, uh, the food source is obviously working. So that was, that was good news. And I was understanding how they were using that area and where they typically would come out. Um, next year, just be more of a, a tweak to where I would potentially set up, uh, if I were going to hunt that late season again. But, you know, um, I was just excited that I saw a shooter because be honest, I think, you know, between my father-in-law and a couple of his buddies that hunted a lot of like, you know, through October, November, and then even into rifle season, I want to say maybe they may have only seen between all the guys that hunted it, maybe three shooters the entire year. Um, you know, and I went in one evening and, and saw two, you That's know, awesome. so, yeah. um, 
so I was I was happy with that. But I know you and I actually have a late season hunt coming up here uh, in in a, in a couple of days together. Yes, sir. Super, super excited about it, and uh, I think we're <clears throat> we're hinting back again to the uh, the us podcast drop. But uh, you know, yeah, well, we'll see. Yeah, because we'll definitely um, have to do an us podcast, you know, here where we talk about, you know, looking back on 2016 and then what we want to do for 2017, maybe some things that we've learned and, and stuff like that. But uh, we'll definitely be dropping that. But I'm definitely looking forward to heading out to your neck of the woods and getting some timber time with you, my friend. It's been a long time coming. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, um, I, I guess the last the last two seasons, it's been uh, archery only second season uh, in, in my WMU. Uh, but prior to that, uh, they actually allowed rifle in second season for doe only. Wow. Um, so yeah, so if you filled your buck tag, but you still need to put a little bit more in the freezer, you go back out rifle for almost a month. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you what, this year, um, out of the times that I've been up there, uh, in that area hunting, uh, I never went a sit without seeing something. Now I've seen total probably three shooters over this season um one one was was the one that kind of kind of got away uh you know we'll we'll talk about that in the reflection podcast <laughs> right <laughs> uh, um but the other two certainly were uh were pretty decent sized too but uh yeah definitely definitely excited to to get out especially um this time of year when you know as you said things kind of calm down a little bit and uh hopefully um, you know, you, you don't see deer feeling and acting as pressured as they typically are during rifle. Right. That, and it's just nice to get out. Like it's the, well, this'll, yeah, this'll, it, this'll probably, generally speaking, of course. Yeah. This'll probably be my last, my last hunt. I would imagine. I don't know that I'll get out anymore this year. And for those that are listening here in the Eastern part of the state, there's a few WMUs who, you know, extend, um, hunting season, you know, deer hunting season out till I think the 29th or like the very end of, end of January. Yeah, I know I back at our last, farm last week in January. Yeah. I know back on our farm, it's, uh, it's been out or it's been done for a week. I think, I think last Saturday was the last, I think a week, roughly a week ago was the last, the last day you could hunt. So I think with that, I know, you know, we have Dan coming on and I'm super stoked to talk to him. It's um, going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to talking to Dan. So I think, you know, before we uh, jump into any other topics, I think I have one more thing to share before we get Dan on the line. I just want to give everyone a heads up or, a, you know, big announcement. So to so to say, um, I'm happy to announce that uh, this Truth from the Stand podcast will be partnering with uh, Whitetail Institute of North America. Um, so, yeah, so I'm super stoked to to be working with those guys. Um, I've used a bunch of their stuff in the past, um, you know, for my for my food plots and stuff and their customer service couldn't be better. They've especially when we first got started in our food plotting um, you know, we placed a lot of phone calls to those guys to make sure that we were doing the right things and we were kind of doing what we needed to do to try to have a successful plot and stuff like that. And they're just some of the the, the nicest dudes you'll you'll meet in the industry. Um, so it was kind of a no brainer whenever the opportunity came up to to work together. You know, and I also thought that just from uh, you know it's one of those things where sometimes food plotting can be a, a little bit of a daunting task. You know, there's a, you think it's a, a lot harder than maybe it is. Um, and so it'll be great to be able to partner with them to hopefully bring some interesting content, um, to the, to everyone out there listening to, to, to bring some content your way to kind of help, uh, 
spread some information and, you know, education, if you will, about food plotting, what it takes, how to do it and, and how to, how to approach it to, to set yourself up for success. So overall, I'm just really, really excited to be, to be working with those guys and, uh, keep your ears peeled for some, uh, for some whitetail Institute of North America information coming to a podcast near you soon. Knowledge is power. Yes, absolutely. So with that said, uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get Dan on the line. But before we get Dan on the line, let's take a quick break to hear a word about our partners at Exodus Outdoor Gear. Archery hunting often can be a humbling experience. I think we can all attest to that. But today we hear from Exodus customer Chris Affelstadt and about how he, with the help of Exodus trail cameras, went from being humbled to an incredible first buck harvest with a bow. It's been four years of bow hunting with zero success. Um, I guess zero, zero harvest up to this point because... They were success, and I, I learned a ton of lessons along the way. But this year, opening day, um, I got my first doe of my life with a bow, which was awesome. And I got it right in front of my trail camera, my Exodus camera, so that was really cool. And then uh, two weeks later, on my third hunt of the year, I put down uh, – I passed on a really nice eight-point, which would have been a great first buck – of my life, never even killed a bug with a gun because I knew this big guy was there. And, uh, 10 minutes later put down, you know, 160 class buck and super, super stoked. So my season ended pretty quick. (laughs) And that my friends is an Exodus experience. Congrats to Chris on a great buck, and I'm sure that story will be told for many years to come. And if you'd like to learn more about Exodus Trail Cameras, visit them at ExodusOutdoorGear.com. And now back to the show. All right, we are back, and we are joined by Dan Enfault. I have to say that I, I've been looking forward to this podcast for a, a little while. I'm sure a lot of you listening at home uh, are aware of Dan and his his many offerings. That he he runs, of course, the HuntingBeast.com, his website. He's written, you know, uh, articles for a, a lot of different publications talking about a wide variety of, of hunting tactics and, and, and strategies. And, uh, and of course, it has appeared on different, you know, various podcasts and, you know, his YouTube channel uh, with his uh, video content is something to, uh, to, to be checked out as well. So I've kind of followed Dan for a little while as far as his writings and his YouTube content is, is concerned. So I'm really excited to have him join us today. Um, so how are you doing, Dan? How are things going? Pretty good. Good, good. So, uh, have you been getting a little bit of cold weather here recently? Snapping out of the uh, the warm weather we've been getting used to the past couple of years. Yeah, we had a nice little cold spell there for a while. Yeah, yeah. I know we had one here. Uh, I guess the past week, um, my turnip plots actually at my at our family farm actually got it some uh, some use. They weren't getting much use up until the uh, the past week or so. But the, so uh, the, the the deer at least getting some vittles, uh, at least using the. All the work that I put in and, and lost a few layers of skin from the sunburn that I got this summer, so at least it wasn't for nothing. But uh, so Dan, I know that a lot of the folks out there listening are, you know, of course, I'm sure have heard of you in some capacity, you know, some way, shape, or form. But for those who may not be as familiar with you, you know, if, if you wouldn't mind, just give us a little bit of background about yourself, you know, where you're from, what you do professionally, and you know, and, and specifically what you kind of do and your approach to the the whitetail world. Uh, I'm kind of a different cat, I guess. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> Perfect. I grew up in uh, southeastern Wisconsin, and I've been here my whole life. Um, I've traveled around a little bit hunting and uh, helping people with their properties across most most of the lower states. Um, so I've got some background in hunting, but I've never really uh, 
seeked out the professionalism thing. You know, I've never went after uh, the big time or anything. I've just gotten well-known from the stuff I've been killing and because I put out some uh, informational videos that really took off. And, uh, you know, I've been on some TV shows and, like you said, been in some articles and books and stuff. And uh, word seems to be spreading. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, – I remember the first time that I was introduced to you – um, I, I gotta say it was, it was the nickname and I don't know, you know, I'll, I'll mention it and you can tell me if you, if you like it or if you don't like it, but, uh, it's, in my opinion, it's the best nickname, um, that I've heard in the, in the outdoor world. It's, uh, Dan Enfault, uh, big buck serial killer. <laughs> and I was like, if you're going to be nicknamed something that is like the absolute perfect nickname for a guy who, you know, seems to get it done, um, with, with regularity. So, I mean, is it fair to say that, you know, you're, you know, I don't want to use the word expertise because I know everybody kind of gets funny about being, you know, called an expert or, you know, I guess, let me put it this way. Is it fair to say that your area of, uh, of, of the most knowledge, I guess that you have, or your approach that you probably are most known for is really your strategies for going after mature deer on highly pressured land. Most of it being of the public variety, but I know that you also spend a little bit of time on, on private as well. Is that fair? Yeah, that's, that's fair. You know, I kind of, uh, I uh, like the public land thing. You, you know, I get offers on outfitted hunts and stuff all the time, and most of the time I just turn them down. Um, it might sound weird, but to me it's not about shooting the biggest buck or having bragging rights or anything. I like to go onto land where anybody can go and come out the, the victor. You know, I, I think there's something about that equal playing field. And if you look out at the world today, I mean, everybody seems to be in competition, you know, to shoot the biggest bucks and stuff. And really, it's not a competition. If it is, the rich guy wins. It's really, you know, you can buy bucks, you can farm them, you can do anything nowadays. And, you know, I know guys like uh, my friend Andre D'Aquisto has a ranch in uh, in Iowa, and I hunted his ranch for 10 days, and in 10 days I had a 150-inch buck walk past me every day. <laughs> I mean, you can't take a guy hunting on a ranch like that and compare that to public land hunting. You know, so for me, I mean, it's about, you know, if, if you're going to go and you're going to say, hey, I know something about hunting, and, and I'm going to show you how to do something, you can't really do that if you're hunting some managed farm and the guys you're talking to are hunting public land. In a lot of cases, I think these guys hunting the public land who aren't getting it done are probably better hunters than the guys on those ranches who are, right. you know? Yeah. And that's why I kind of really like that public land thing. And there's something about the pride of hunting down a big buck on land where there's a lot of people out there hunting for that buck, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I hundred percent agree with you. I mean, I, <clears throat> I've mentioned this, you know, in, in the past on, on the podcast here, it's, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Phil and I are both from PA. Um, we always had a, a small tract of land growing up. My dad, my dad did. And then some of my grandparents did. So I, I hunted predominantly on, um, you know, family land for, for the most part, my dad and I would venture off every now and then on some, on some private or I'm sorry, on some, uh, on some public land. And, uh, we have a family farm that I spent some time doing some habitat management and stuff like that. And this year I just was really intrigued to go to Ohio cause I'd never been to Ohio whitetail hunting. I've been out of state to Alaska for some different hunts. Um, but I'd never hunted whitetail out of state. And so I went on Ohio land or Ohio, uh, public land hunting trip this, uh, November and, 
arrowed the biggest buck I've ever arrowed. Uh, you know, killed the biggest buck I've ever killed. It was my first buck with with a bow. You know, I've killed does and stuff in the past, but it was my first buck with a bow. And you're right, man. The sense of pride that I had from taking that deer because I had to work for it. You know, there wasn't any. I had to go in and read sign. And honestly, I I read up on some of your articles and went on the huntingbeast.com and and followed you know some of the folks on there in the forum and got some, some just you know reading through and getting some tips and stuff. And, um, there was a, definitely a sense of pride of knowing that I got it done in an area, um, that that's a challenge that not everybody does. You know, there were plenty of guys coming back to camp just saying that they didn't, weren't seeing deer and I was run over with them and I had, you know, great opportunities. So I think that, I think it's weird. Cause I think that the conversation's even shifting that way a little bit. As I listen to people talk and just listen to some of the chatter on, on social, I think that there's starting to be a little bit more of an affinity for public land hunting than there was maybe even two or three years ago. Do you think that's a fair assessment? The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Yeah, I do. I, you know, I've seen it coming for years. Um, there was a big trend. You know, you know, I grew up in a time when it was public hunting. So I've seen the trend go from, you, you know, from the public land to also the deer farming thing. Right. And now it seems to be, like you said, going back. And it, it seems to be like uh, a lot of hunters actually seem to have a resentment towards people that have huge tracts of managed land, which isn't right either. I mean, everybody has their thing and they can do their, you know, what they want. Right. But it, it has kind of like flipped. You're right. And it, and it seems to be going, you know, a lot faster now in that direction. Correct. Right. And I think it's some good work doing it. It's funny. Cause I just, we recently uh, spoke with uh, Aaron Warbritton from uh, Midwest Whitetail. And he actually mentioned some tactics that he learned from, from you actually. And I know that he does a lot of public hunting land in Iowa. And that's a lot of what he films specifically. And, and I think it's nice to see some of those folks that are, you know, larger in the industry, like the Midwest, like Bill Winkie's crew that are focusing some of their efforts on public land and bringing that kind of story to the, to the masses, if you will. Um, but I do want to dive into some specifics here because, you know, we have you of course, and, um, and you have a lot of information you can share that I think will help a lot of folks out there that do focus on public hunting, whether it's something that they focus on because it's what they want to do, or if they focus on it because it's what they have, have to do. So I did want to jump into just, you know, some topics about public land and and kind of your strategy and your approach. And, And the first thing I wanted to ask you is I think sometimes people are challenged with how to understand how to start, I guess. So I guess the first thing I want to kind of tee up with you is when you're looking to go on a hunt and say it's in an area that maybe you're not 100% familiar with, how are you choosing that piece of public land to hunt? Like what what tools or tactics or scouting approach are you using to like qualify the parcel of land, if you will, to say, you know, this is a good piece of land versus I don't think this would be a great piece of land. Can you kind of give us kind of like a, a walk through your brain, if you will, of how you qualify a piece of land that you're going to potentially hunt? Sure. Um, you, you know, um, the first thing that's ringing in my mind when you're saying that is, is there's differences in terrain and such, you, you know, I might go attack something in hill country different than I attack something in, you know, swamp land. Um, like if I go out into hill country in like uh, Western Wisconsin or Iowa or something, um, what I'm really looking for is, um, areas that are known for big bucks that got low hunter pressure and 
maybe I'm looking for, you know, I might talk to the biologist in the area and, and find out if there's any new properties that opened. That's always a cool thing to start with too. But really what I'm looking for is properties that are nowhere near camping, nowhere near town, nowhere where somebody's going to stay in motels and stuff in farming areas. And uh, the reason is, is all those farmers and the people who live around those farms hunt those farms. The public land doesn't get hit that hard. Usually public land gets hit by city folks, you know, guys that come from the towns. Not necessarily cities, but towns. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So the yeah. further away you get from town, the less likely you're going to have pressure. You know, and, and then I'm seeking out properties that, in that terrain, that, uh, you know, got some uniqueness to them. Um, is there no parking lot? You know, is there uh, hidden access? Um, is, do you have to cross a river before you can even get to the hill country? Um, spot, you know, um, those things are crossing my mind. So I'm looking for hard access. I'm looking for things that are overlooked and I'm looking for things that are ways away from people, you know, and, and, uh, that's what I'm doing on a travel trip in hill country. Now if I'm looking at swampland or, or farmland or, or whatever, like around my home area, kind of flat, a little bit of roll to it. It's mostly farming. I'm looking for wet stuff. There's a lot of hunting pressure here. So I'm looking for wet stuff because the bucks are going to use water for cover. And I'm looking for dense swamps and stuff. And another reason for that is all the gun hunters will do drives. They'll do pushes. Um, they'll cover every inch dry land, and they'll kill everything. You know, when you look around my area um, where I live, we've got a lot of hunting pressure here, probably the most in the state. And you can drive around on, on opening day and you see orange everywhere. But where you don't see it is out in those those cattail marshes in the water or in the swamps and those bucks gravitate to there and i'm going out into those spots where nobody wants to go basically you know right so so the one thing i i've heard you mention in the, in the past and i wanted to, and i definitely wanted to bring this up and i think this is a good a good place to do it and so there's places where you don't want to go and you talked about hard access and you know my hunt this year in ohio was living proof of that where it wasn't it kind of fell in line with some of the things I heard you say in, in you know, at different times, which was the access was hard because it was straight up a really nasty climb through nasty stuff that no one wanted to go through. But it wasn't all that far away from a road necessarily. You know, and yeah. I've heard you talk about before of like looking at those pockets where people were going to overlook because they would never think a buck would bed or be living in that area. Can you talk about those areas and kind of how you how you find those and what those might look like? No, when you're hunting in uh, Ohio, you're hunting the hilly stuff, right? Right. Yeah, correct. The hilly area. Now, in the hilly areas like like that, uh, a lot of time, you, you know, you'll have certain accesses, and sometimes you can get in between uh, some private pieces or whatever. But they'll have an access someplace in a little parking lot or whatever to get back there. And in a lot of cases, those parking lots are low. Mm-hmm. Um, where those low parking lots are, and you have access up a valley. I can't tell you how many times the hill right alongside the parking lot, and nobody's going to go up there because they follow the access trail to go straight back, has the biggest buck on the property on it. I found that like 10% of the hilly stuff I, find, I, I hunt has a spot like that where it's right next to the road, and they're overlooking watching the guys in the parking lot. You know, um, A lot of times if you, if you can go in and then hook back around, a lot of times there's stuff up against the border of the road where you can't access from the road from that area. You know, and really what you got to do with a property like that is take a look at it 
and like look at the aerial of the of the Tahoe and say, okay, where does everybody hunt? Okay, and you you cross out eighty percent of that map, and you got twenty percent left, and now you say, what has suitable habitat for deer to be bedded there? And now you really got one or two spots. And really, most of my public land stuff on the hilly stuff, usually each property has one or two spots I'll hunt, and then I'm off to a different property. Where another guy might dwell on a property and hunt all over that one property, and a lot of it's wasted hunts. You know, you know what I'm saying? I'm I'm seeking out the one spot that'll hold a mature buck there. You know, right? So, so there's a couple things I want to follow up on there, but I want to I want to ask you this question. So, so once you've decided where you're going to hunt, say you you know you went to a new state and you've you know it's just for our purposes it's hill country or it's or it's, it's swampland, and you've decided it's this parcel. Like, what's your approach to scouting that? that piece of land and what, you know, I guess, are you, are you scouting, you know, during the, the winter, are you focusing on spring and, and what type of sign are you specifically, you know, looking for during those times? Okay. First off, I, I scout all year. Okay. Uh, I'm scouting beds at a certain time of the year to look for them, but you know, in that the best time, and I don't talk about this a lot, but the best time overall is in season because then you see live what's going on now. Right. But most of the time we got a tag in our pocket. You know what I mean? So we're not doing that. We're not messing up our hunting. So if you fill your tags, the best time to hunt is right as soon as you get those tags filled. And you go out there and, you know, you know, check out those pockets and see what's going on, find the bedding and such. And if not, as soon as you're done hunting is the best time. You know, now those hills, if they're covered with snow, that's not always the best time. You might have to wait till the snow melts, you know, because a lot of guys don't get it, but you'll see the sign underneath the snow. But the deer will move different and and live on the property different when there's a foot of snow on it. Right. That makes sense, you know. Yeah, no, it it it, it does. So when you so say you're doing your your in season scouting and are when you're finding rubs and and or scrapes, you know, or just sign in general, you know, how are you using that specifically to help inform, you know? your, your hunting strategies, particularly if you're doing something that you filled your tag late in the season, you're really doing like an off season scout, say it's this time of year. Um, um, you know, how much are you using sign from the past and how much, how much value do you give that? If you clearly know it's something from the previous year, my answer is probably going to differ from a lot of other people's answers. And I think a lot of people get too fixated on, on rubs and scrapes and stuff. Because if you think about what a mature buck does, um, 90% of his activity is at night, probably 95%, and 5% is during the day. And during the day, they're pretty cautious, so they're not making as much sign as when they're feeling at ease. So most of that sign you're finding is made at night. So most guys are going to go out there and they're going to find a rub cluster or a giant rub or something, they're going to set a stand over the top of it, or they're going to find a rub line right behind a field or something or, or even back in the woods and they're going to think, Oh, I got him. I got him. What are you doing different than anybody else's? That's what everybody's doing. Is everybody shooting big bucks? The sign to me is only important to tell me that there's a big buck on the property. You know, uh, a rub that's on a 12 inch tree and the rub center is, you know, uh, 40 inches off the ground. Yeah. That's going to catch my attention, <laughs> but doesn't mean I want to put a stand there. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. I know there's one in that area someplace. 
Right. And in some cases, I, I find sign like that, and I don't even hunt it because I determined that I don't even think that buck lives on his property. He's just coming through here at night, you know. Right. And there's nothing I can do. So what I need to do is find sign that's close to bedding. Okay. You know, find uh, the rubs that are coming out of a bedding area or a, a scrape where uh, two staging areas from a bedding area meet. You know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That'll get my attention, you know. Um, but... Uh, Random rubs and scrapes all over the place? Not really. Okay. So I think that that's a good segue because the, the one thing I know from from following you and reading your articles and following you know a lot of your videos is that you hunt public land, you know, what I think some would some folks would consider, you know, rather aggressively. Um, and I know that you focus a lot and you've mentioned it here a couple times in, in these first couple, you know, questions that we've been discussing that you focus your hunting predominantly on, on buck bedding. So I guess, you know, I think when people hear that, you know, they think, you know, find the buck bedding and, and then find the buck. And I think it sounds a lot easier than it is, you know, because if, if it was that easy to do, everyone That's would true. set up on a, on a big buck bed <laughs> and they would kill a big buck every year. So what are the main, I guess, what's the key for you to finding mature buck bedding, especially whenever you're talking about public land? Like, what are you looking for that's going to key you in to say, say you found that rub that caught your attention, Right. And now you know mm-hmm. that there's a big buck on the area, so now you want to find his bedding. Like, how are you? How are you going about finding that bedding in that area? The first thing I'm looking for is the overlooked areas, the spots where nobody goes, and then I'm determining what has the best terrain in those areas. Because bedding's all about terrain, you know, terrain and, and uh, thickness. You know, you know, it's about elevation and in, in hill country, a certain elevation and a certain wind direction, and in lowland. It's, it's about the lowest elevations and the thickest stuff. And where is that where nobody's going? And that's the first st- stuff I'm going to key in on. And I'm usually, you know, you know, right on it. You know, um, like there's uh, an area I scouted with a, uh, a friend of mine last week. Uh, we scouted an area he wanted to look at. And it's probably, oh, three square miles. We scouted in one day. And I, I found all the big buck that I'm sure of it. Wow. Because we just went straight to the wet stuff <laughs> and stayed out of the rolling hills and the, <laughs> you know, the, the cornfields and, and stuff because there's just crops on this public land over here. I, I don't even go into that stuff. You're not going to find them. You're going to find sign, but there's no deer there. And that's where everybody hunts. Right. Nobody's going down into that water and wading through stuff that's on their knees. And we're finding the big buck beds and stuff. And, you know, really, in these areas, that's where I'm killing them, you know? Right. So, are, so when you're setting up, I mean, you're setting up, of course, like when you get, I think one of the interesting things that I saw in one of your videos was, and I I never did this before. Actually, two weekends ago, I went out and I scouted, I found a buck bed and I actually followed your advice from this video as I actually got in the bed and I crouched down to see what the, what the deer can see. Can you talk a little bit about, about that approach and what you're really looking for when you, when you do that? You know, when, when I go into a buck bed and I look, I look at this bedding area, um, I like to get in that main bed and take a look around. And if you look at the shape of the, the bed, usually there's this, it's kind of like banana shaped. Mm-hmm. The back is at that rounded side, you know, and in some beds they'll bed there on any wind direction. So they'll face different directions. They're always facing downwind. I've never seen a buck bed any other way. And I've seen, I've seen hundreds of deer bed and I've never seen one not bedded looking downwind. The only time I see them not looking downwind is if something catches their attention and they swivel their head around. They're always looking downwind because they can smell behind them. So 
if you think about that, if there's one way is open, you know, there's one way where you can see from that bed, I can guarantee you he's bedding there when the wind is blowing from the thick and he's looking at that opening. And that's why a lot of these beds you'll find right on the edge, on the transition line where it's thick, where they can look out while they're smelling behind them. So they're only there on that wind, you know? Mm-hmm. That's 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 kind of wild because you just absolutely described like two of the best buck beds I've ever found on my on our family farm, <laughs> which are literally sitting on the edge of, of a bunch of thick stuff on the top. of It's actually on the top of a mountain. Cause I was typically looking for them more, you know, maybe a third of the way down, you know, on a bench possibly. Um, but they were actually all the, all the way to the top. But of course the thickest stuff was, was at the top. So that would, would kind of make sense. So, so we kind of get a sense of, you know, what you're looking for in a, in a buck bed, you know, and, and then what you're looking to see. I mean, when you crouch down, you're, you're really looking for their exit routes, right? Like how is he getting to, how is he getting to food? How is he getting to additional safer cover? And those are the areas you're really going to try to set up on, right? Right. Yeah. I, I do want to, from his bed, you know, look down that exit route and see as far as I can see. Cause it, Buck's got what I call a safe zone and, and uh, a safe zone is if you took an imaginary circle and drew it around that bed, and you say, okay, now if I'm right here, and there's people out here trying to kill me, I know everything that enters this circle. I can see it if it's over there. I can smell, if it, smell it if it's over there. I can hear it if it's over here. I know everything going on in this circle. I feel safe here. I'm going to get up and wander around here with no care in the world until I get to that border. And where that border is, is what I, what I consider a staging area. And I want to be where they stage on the edge of that safe zone. And I can kind of see that from the bed. I can see where they're going, well, you know, how far they can get. And this time of year is nice because you're going to see a little further now than you are during hunting season. So you're not going to be too close. You know what I mean? Right. But, uh, I think what a lot of people don't get, and probably a lot of your listeners are going to, you know, raise an eyebrow at this, but a lot of these deer that I kill, on public land, and, and some of them are really big ones. I've watched them step up from their bed and walk to me where I can see them because I'm in cattail cover or whatever. In a lot of cases, I can see those bucks when they get up. And they get up, you know, half hour, hour before dark. And by the time they're 75 yards to where I can shoot them, and I mean 75 yards, you can almost hit them from where they get up. By the time they get into my shooting range, my window, it's almost closing time. Right. What chance does a guy even have mm-hmm. if he's hunting that buck and he's 250 yards back? Yeah. You don't even have a chance. I mean, he's just hoping that it's the one day that that deer gets a bug up its ass and goes for a walkabout, you know? Right. <laughs> and I don't think they do that very much when they're, <laughs> when they're mature. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. Yep. I mean, so I think, you know, I think one of the things that people get confused by. And I I just know speaking from personal experience that I have, I've gotten confused by in the past. I'm just making an assumption that others probably have had, you know, a similar encounter or a similar situation, but I've heard you talk about primary bedding versus seasonal buck bedding. Can you kind of give us a description of, of what those two things are and what defines the two different types of bedding? I guess just in, in what, what might look different about that bedding area in those two scenarios? You know, I struggle with that a lot, um, with trying to explain that to people, because it is hard to explain. But 
um, primary bedding is going to hold bucks year-round. And usually every buck in the area is bedding in the primary bedding. You know, uh, you might go there one day and one buck comes out of there, and you go there a different day and a different buck comes out of there. Um, and it usually holds bucks all year, or at least for the majority of it. Um, where seasonal bedding is just what it sounds like. They might be better than a position because of doe bedding. So it might be a rut only bed. Uh, they might be bedding in a position because of, uh, uh, a food source like corn or acorns or something. And, uh, you know, there, there might be uh cover that ain't going to be there later in the year. Um, you know, you think about an area in winter, you know, what has cover, you know, those primary areas are still going to have cover. And those areas hold bucks year round, you know, on, you get out into uh, some of these spots and uh, you get out there, say, early season where you got to wade through water for a mile or two <laughs> to get out there. Right. And you don't see deer. You don't see much sign. But if you do see one, it's usually a giant, big old one, you know. Right. Those big bucks will be back there year-round. But I go back there and I hunt, like, the weekend after gun season, and I'll see 50 bucks, and they're all little. Right. So, I mean, they They'll hold more bucks, is what I'm trying to get across, you know, at certain times or whatever. And But uh, primary bedding is a place where those bucks feel really safe. And I think a mature buck probably has, you know, 15 or 20 spots like that. But he's probably got, you know, 100 spots that are seasonal, right. maybe it's more. A, it sounds like seasonal, right? You know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here. I don't want to misspeak, but... It's almost as though primary, if you find a good bedding area that's got great cover, right? And you can kind of look at it and say, I know this is going to have great cover year round. Like that's pretty, that's a pretty solid, you know, affirmation that it's probably going to be a buck bed. that's going to be used no matter what time of year we're talking about. When we're looking at seasonal, you really, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're really looking at what are the environmental changes that's going to cause him to want to bed in different places. So on, and it's, I think, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it'd probably be different on every property, right? Cause one might be getting a lot of pressure. So that those particular group of bucks that live, that call that property home, maybe looking for denser cover and that might be, you know, right. seasonal, or you might be on a property that doesn't have a lot of pressure and you have a lot of, you know, natural food and, and you know, uh, food for them in, in, in the timber, whether it's acorns or whatever the case might be. So they might, bed further out away from cover during those times of year just to be closer to the food source. So it sounds like it's almost like you have to really put your woodsmanship to work to figure out how the bedding is going to change. To some degree, but you, you know, um, it's kind of like being a detective. You get right. in that, that bedding area and you got to look at it and say, okay, why are they bedding here? You know, what, what's the reasoning? And sometimes you're going to be wrong and sometimes you're going to be right. But the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. You, you know, and, and, you might get to a point where you can be pretty accurate with it. You know, obviously I still make mistakes at it. You, right. you know, it's not a, it's not a game of perfection, you know, but, uh, you know, I can think of like, uh, some points. I mean, they look great and you think, Oh man, there's going to be a buck bedded here. This is, this is going to be primary bedding. And I get in there and I don't see a buck. And it turns out you find out after a couple of years of hunting it, that they're really there only in early season when the acorns are dropping. Right. You know, but it looked to me like it was primary, but I'm not a deer. Right. You, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. So, I mean, some of it you got to, you, you know, you got to throw some stands at it. I got kind of a rule that if I got any question about something, I throw three stands at it. And what I mean by that is I throw one in there early season, throw one in there in rut, 
I throw in there in late season and see what happens. You know, sometimes you can get these stands where you know that every year, you know, like the first weekend in October, there's going to be a buck better than this area. That's seasonal. Right. You know, but you go in there, you know, mid-September or you go in there, uh, you know, towards rut and there's, and it's a ghost town. Right. That was a, you know, that, which, I'm sorry, go ahead. You go ahead. No, I was going to say that you actually just made a, a perfect segue into like the next thing that I was, that I was thinking was that, you know, we, we were talking about primary and seasonal, seasonal betting. And I was just wondering if, you know, in, in your years of experience, have you found any corollaries between times of season and betting? So, f- for example, have you found any things to be somewhat consistent for you or a pattern for you that bucks like this type of thing in early season I've found, you know, uh, on the average? And, and for, you know, the October lull, I've found them to like this type of area or this type of betting during this type of season. Have have you gotten to the point to where you found like any of these similarities season over season, you know, in during the different sections of the season? Oh, well... <laughs> I I guess uh, in a way, you know. I mean, I, I found uh, betting that's that you you figure out that it only comes in every two years, and it takes you a while to figure that out. Well, it's because corn is only planted there every two years, and they're they're betting there, you, you know, um, in October. And that guy always leaves his corn standing, you know. Right. Um, that kind of thing, you know, you know, or or rut betting, you you know, they're going to be there during the rut. Mm-hmm. You know, well, one thing I have seen a correlation with it was a little off topic, but. Uh, um, is if you see a lot of rubs around the bedding, it's probably used around rut time or, or just pre-rut. You know, um, some of my best bedding areas don't even have any rubs around them where there's low densities and stuff. But usually if you get a lot of, a lot of big rubs around a bed, like from a big buck where they're real high, if he's rubbing around a bedding area that aggressively, it's probably a rut bed. Hmm. All right. That's interesting. I've run into a couple... Because I've always kind of thought, and, I, and this is just I'm, you know, just guessing here. It's I've always been, I've always wondered how much. Let me let me rephrase this. When I'm looking at buck betting, do you give any credence to how to how busy the the, the rub line is in that particular area? And I'm wording this really poorly, and I'm, and I'm sorry, my brain just completely went went on me. But whenever you find a bed, are, are you? enamored with something that has a ton of rubs around it or are you more interested in something that has like sparse sparse rubs around it that tells you maybe he's using that during moving through that area during daylight what i find is like uh most of the pressured stuff i hunt now this changes if i get onto like uh country's managed farm mm-hmm. but if i'm on public land what i'm finding is uh mature bucks don't usually have a lot of bedding or, or rubbing around their beds they usually don't have rub lines coming in and out of the rubbing usually starts out further. It's like they don't mark up their bedding areas. When I do find a lot of rubbing around a bedding area, it's usually got two year olds in it hmm. that are doing that. Okay. Uh, they, they are very aggressive and rub a lot, but when they start getting out to like four years older and older, I don't find a lot of rubs there. Every now and then you'll find one or two around the bedding area, especially if it's a primary bedding area. But it's, it's like the marking ain't, uh, real extreme and I think that fools a lot of people they go in there and there's like there's no sign of a deer here well one big buck ain't gonna leave a lot of sign you know right no that's a good that's a good point I think too you gotta remember too that uh, um, I think that when there's rubbing around a bedding area it's because you're competing I think all rubs are competing 
when they rub, they're, they're marking something. And when they rub around a bedding area, it's because they're competing for those beds. And if you get them low densities and you got a mature buck, ain't no buck going to come bedding anywhere near him if he's the kingpin. So if he hangs in that area, you know, a lot of times there won't be rubbing. Um, and one case in point, um, there's a, a spot near here I hunt. Um, it's, it's actually the one spot that I hunt that's private. It's my buddy's farm. It's 70 acres because it's surrounded by heavy pressure. And it, it's actually harder to kill a buck there than it is in the public <laughs> because it's so small and open. Right. But he's got one primary bedding area there. And we've been hunting that for, geez, I think it's 25 years now. Wow. And there's, when we first started hunting that, that bedding area would be rubbed up a lot. And then they had the CWD thing where they kill a lot of deer mm-hmm. and the population went way down. And now you couldn't buy a rub in there, but that's still where the biggest bucks in their bed. Every time we see one, that's where it comes in. Every year we see several big bucks this year too, come in and out of there. And the rubs just aren't there, hmm. but they're bedding there. That's interesting. So it's, uh, well, you know, the, the older, and that's primary bedding, right? The older, the deer, the wiser he gets, he doesn't want to leave, uh, any, any evidence at the scene of the crime. <laughs> and I, and I might've overstated that, but so many of your listeners are so focused on sign that they want to see that rub to, to have the confidence to hunt there. Mm. And they got to find their confidence somehow else because, that's not always going to be there. And if, if you go in there, you look and there's no rubs and you move on to the next one, you might be hunting the spot that got the two year olds because they're the ones rubbing. Right. I think, I mean, I think you're a hundred percent correct because, you know, I definitely will admit that, you know, there was a, there was a time where that was an approach that I took, you know, and I think a lot of folks when they go out, um, you know, just want to see deer. Um, so they try to put mm-hmm. themselves in a position where they're just going to see numbers right and they can go back to camp or back to their buddies and say i saw 10 deer tonight or i saw eight deer or however many it happens to be um i think your success changes when you start looking to your point for the right sign and you're not necessarily looking for all the deer you're looking for the right one to come by Mm -hmm. you know and so you know what i've found is that i've definitely had more sits where i've seen fewer deer but in this past year i've actually had more sits where i saw the right deer um right you know which um when that light bulb kind of goes off and you start to have those experiences, it's, uh, you just get hungry for it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the sits are just so much more enjoyable because I know what I'm set up. If I did all my homework, right. It's, uh, if, if I do see something, I, you know, it's going to be one that I might have an opportunity at, um, which I think is, yeah. in my opinion, is more exciting than seeing numbers, numbers of deer. But one of the things I want to ask you about, and I've watched you or listened to you talk about this a couple of different times, and it's really interesting because I think it's also one of the hardest things to play or one of the hardest things to kind of, I don't want to say figure out because I don't think you ever fully figured it out, but how to how to manage it, if you will. But that's working with the wind. And so what I what I wanted to kind of know is, do you find that, that bucks are working wind differently on approach versus exit betting or, you know, maybe if we break it down even further, like, you know, morning versus, versus evening in a betting area? Absolutely. Um, morning is way different than evening. And, uh, what I, what I'm seeing is that, um, when bucks go into betting, they're paranoid of it. They circle downwind, no matter which way they came from. And they walk nose to wind straight to that bed, get to the bed, turn around, and they watch your back trail with the wind to their back. So they're watching the trail they came in on. And that's pretty much 
almost every time they bed. But when they leave a bed, they get up and they go from point A to point B, and regardless of the wind. And the only thing I see in regards to the wind when they move away in the evening is that if they're going into an area they can't smell, they go a little slower. They hold up a little bit, you know, you know, at that staging area a little longer kind of thing. And uh, uh, I think a lot of people think that this deer got to have that wind in their nose to come out of that bedding area, and they don't. Um, you know, I've told plenty that have the wind blowing right in my face when they get up out of the bed and come to me. But coming in in the morning, it's really hard to kill those bucks in the bedding areas because they J-hook in. Mm-hmm. They come around, and they, they get to a certain point, and they hook into there. And that's going to change daily. So you're not really going to see a heavy trail or something where they come in. So when you see trails around bedding, and you, you see trails going to or from the bedding or whatever, mm-hmm. they're going from the bedding. Those are the ones where he's leaving. That's where he's leaving a trail because he's going the same route every time. That's why I like hunting bedding in the evening more. Uh, in the morning, I try to cut them off at a funnel just before the bedding. And the thing is, too, in the morning, uh, I've tried a few times to like get right over the top of a bed and kill these things. And I've had a little bit of success with it. Um, but there's always the times when them things get back to their beds an hour or two before daylight. <laughs> and if they get in there and they wander around in the dark and you can't see them, even if you're in the tree, you can't kill them. They're going to get your wind. They're going to catch something. I mean, they're masters at busting you. They're going to find out you're there and booger out of there and you just ruined your hunt. That's not to say I don't make my attempts at morning hunts. I do. But it's not easy except for rut. Now, rut, they come back to the bedding later. Uh, you, you know, that's the exception. But that early season and late season, um, they're getting to those beds before daylight a lot. Right. But they still leave in daylight. But when you come in, to get back to your question, because I went off on a tantrum again, <laughs> <laughs> when they when they come in in the morning, uh, they're coming in wind and nose. When they leave, don't matter. So do you give any credence? Because the one thing you said is when they're leaving, you've had the wind in your face and a buck come right, right to you. Um are you of the, you know, follow the school of thought, you know, because I've, I've heard some guys talk about, you know, angling wind or crosswinds, or you have to give the deer a wind, the wind at some point to make him comfortable enough to move. Um, do you kind of fall into that same school of thought to where it's like you're going to need, say it's an evening hunt, you know he's going to exit a bed a, a certain way. Do you kind of go in knowing that you're going to have to partially give that deer the wind to make him comfortable enough to come to come out of his bedding in that, well, well, in that kinda, direction? Kind of. Um my point of view is uh, if the deer is bedding there for a certain wind and his exit's going into that wind, you've got to hunt upwind of him, right? Mm-hmm. Or you ain't going to kill him. Or when you do hunt there, he's not going to be bedded there because the wind's in your face, right? So if he's only bedded there when the wind's coming down and he's going that direction and you have to hunt over there, you have to hunt with it just off wind. Right. So I'm getting on the side of the wind that's blowing one way. And that's part of the whole mobile thing too, you know, hunting mobile, is you have to you know, be able to take your stand and move to the tree you need to be in for the wind of the day. I'm actually, when I'm going into those spots, even though, you know, I may have gone in there and looked at trees already in the spring or whatever, I'm not locking myself into a tree because I don't know what the wind's going to be that day. So as I'm getting up there, I'm actually checking the wind with milkweed, and I'm not doing it at my truck, and I'm not doing it with the, the weather station because it changes in terrain, you know, from 100 yards. You know, it'll be different. So as I'm getting up there, I'm checking with milkweed and seeing what the wind's doing. 
And you, you have to have a little bit off. You can't be, I mean, off by 10 feet or something because you get a little drift over. Mm-hmm. But you get a just off wind where he's coming around into the wind and, and you know, he, maybe he feels perfectly safe. Right. But you got the wind to your favor, actually, because it's blown off to the side. Right. So how are you factoring in, and how are you factoring in thermals for, 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 for this type of hunt? And I guess maybe let's back up like even a step further and just, cause I've heard you talk about this piece as well. Can you just kind of give us a, a quick high level explanation of what thermals are and, and, and how they work? And then I guess let's talk about how you factor that into whenever you're setting up, you know, with the prevailing wind versus the thermal. Okay. Well, th- uh, what a thermal is, is when uh, uh, ground or water either heats or cools from either the sun shining on it or the sun going over a hill. And when the ground or water changes temperature, it affects the air above it and makes the air move. And um, what happens is when the sun is shining on, on dirt, the dirt will get warm, and that will warm the air right above it, and warm air will expand, and it causes it to rise, sucking in air from below it or whatever. So in hill country, when you get that a valley warming up and air rising uh, and wind coming over a hill, um, the wind coming over the top of the hill is going to create a little bit of a vacuum and suck the stagnant air into the current up the hill, right? So it's going to actually take those thermals and pull them to the hillside, and you'll have a wind that blows up that hill. And it might sound like, well, it's, it would barely be an air drift. But anybody who's hunted and gotten steep hills can tell you, I mean, you stand on a steep hill, it's almost like a, a heavy blowing wind at your back on a hot day. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens is when that the sun goes over the hill and a shadow casts across that valley, the ground will start cooling, and the opposite effect will happen, and all of a sudden that air will start rushing back down. And your wind's going to change 180 in hill country if you're hunting that leeward side. I guess either side. Your, your wind's going to change from going uphill to downhill. You know, as that shadow comes off or from uh, shadow to sunlight. So now the other kind of thermal is the water thermal. And water thermals, um, like in swamps or uh, with shallow ponds, um, the water will heat up like bathtub water especially if it's shallow water. And it'll stay warm when the sun goes over the horizon, and that'll suck your scent up to the pond or to the water, and then it'll rise. So if you... um, You can have a certain wind, but if you set up in between the water and, uh, uh, you know, you have the deer walking in between you and the water... I mean, you're going to get gusts of wind that direction. It's not nearly as uh, as potent as the ground thermals in hill country, but as soon as you get a calm spot, you'll see the the, the wind pull into the water. Right. My my, I wouldn't say necessarily my first, but whenever I finally understood thermals, I won't say fully mm-hmm. understood, but began to understand how to work with them. It was a video that you actually did where you were using milkweed sitting in your stand, tossing out over this little body of water to show how the thermal was, was working because it literally sucked the milkweed right out to the body of water. And as soon as it hit the body of water, it went straight up in the air. 
<laughs> uh, that must have been that pond one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. It was I was the having po- fun with that. <laughs> yeah, it was the pond one. But it's it's interesting that you because everyone always you know takes some type of wind device into the woods, right? It's usually like some type of talcum powder or something like that they're blowing in. Mm-hmm. And then I watched that, and you're using milkweed. Can you kind of describe why you use milkweed and I guess the, the value you get out of it? Uh, milkweed is the greatest free tool you'll ever get. <laughs> I have it with me at all times, and. The value is, I mean, you take talcum powder, and if it's dead calm, it's dead calm, right? Right. You drop milkweed, and you're going to see where the air is going, regardless of it being calm. You're going to see where your scent stream's going, because it's going to go wherever that milkweed goes. And I use that stuff all the time, and you can drop it, and if it hits that deer, that deer smells you. I mean, I can watch it hit a spot, and when the deer gets to it, he, he blows. Or like this year, I had a deer coming out, and he was in that just-off wind, and the wind was shifting and blowing, like, straight at him. So I kept dropping the milkweed and it was just missing them. And the thing never smelled me. It walked right past, you know, but if it, if you see a curve to them, he gets you, you know, and what, what is cool about it too is with talcum powder or a, a string or something, you're not going to see what the wind's doing 20 feet from you. And you'd be amazed at how much it turns, how it follows the terrain, how it goes around obstacles. And not only does it, uh, you know, show you what it's doing now, but after you use it a year or two, you start seeing trends mm-hmm. and you can start seeing how you can set up upwind of a deer because of what the wind does around obstacles and around trees and around hills, you know, because you've learned some things about wind flow just from watching this stuff. Right. It's, it's almost like a wind map playing out in front of you, you know, when yeah. you walk, when you, you know, and it, it, that stuff is so cool and works so great that you just can't get that point across talking about it. Guy's got to try it. I mean, uh, I would urge everybody that's listening that, that has access to milkweed to try it. I think I think Dan Enfelt should package it up and sell Dan Enfelt milkweed. Big business <laughs> opportunity right there. <laughs> um, probably see you ATA next year with that. Um, <laughs> but uh, so the one thing, <clears throat> excuse me, I want I wanted to kind of to ask you because I'm always curious to see how folks kind of plan their hunts, and I'm just curious to know. You know, do you use? Is there anything that you help determine what days or times are are best to go out and hunt? Like, are you are you following the moon at all? Are you following barometric pressure, wind speed? Do you have any theories around some of those factors that you follow? You know, I pay attention to all that stuff. Um, but I hunt every day, um, every chance I get. Um, I might go, you know, a month long and hunt every single day. <laughs> but if, if it's rut. And I'm hunting cruising areas. I'm making sure that I'm out there when that moon is overhead or underfoot. I've I've seen too many deer moving around that time period to rule that it's coincidental. Um, I don't know how to explain it, but, uh, you know, I used to keep charts of everything I saw. And if you wouldn't look at the moon chart, you know, you sit all day, you you know, on a, you know, five-day hunt or something. You sit all day every day. And 90% of the deer are at the, the moon times, and the moon time's changing every day. Hmm. And that's, that's not coincidental, you know. So, yeah, I pay attention to that stuff, but I'm out and out there regardless. So um, what what I do think you get out of it, too, is, like, say, um, say you got that deer that just won't get far enough from bedding, and you're watching him from an observation stand, and he's not getting to where you need him to get to, to kill 
you know, it takes that, um, you know, that day that's really cold in winter mm-hmm. or the day that, uh, that you got a, a drastic barometer change, uh, or it takes, you know, that moon being directly overhead right in the last hour of the day. And he might only get 20 yards further, but that's where you can get an arrow. Right. You know? So you mentioned something there that I wanted to, that I wanted to, to follow up on, which was observation sets. You know, I think, you know, me from a, per, from personal experience, I, I had a hard time, I guess, when I, when I was younger and seeing the value in them, I guess, I, you know, a lot of guys mm-hmm. and girls who are out there listening, you know, it's, you know, for me, it's a work full-time job. I'm a dad, you know, so when I get an opportunity yeah. to go out and hunt, you know, I, I usually want to go hunt and it's hard for me to give up a day of just saying, I'm going to sit to, to watch, you know, but what I have found is that as I started doing it, the days I was hunting became better hunting days versus, you know, just going in and kind of winging it. So I guess how often are you sitting for observation versus, you know, what we would call quote unquote, a killing stand before moving in, you know, tight to a bedding area to try to get your shot. I would say probably about, uh, 20, 25% of my, uh, hunts are full blown observation sets. Um, but you might, you might, increase that to 30, 35%, um, where a lot of them are half kill, half observation, where I'm in a spot where I got a good opportunity to kill something, but I can also see some other stuff. So I'm getting into positions where I can, I can obviously watch things. And like you said, uh, uh, I see that over and over again, uh, young guys or guys ain't, ain't got a lot under their belt yet. Um, they see too much value in, in, they're hunting time because they're not getting results. Well, they're not getting results because of the way they're hunting. They need to change something up. And that one day of watching could be a world of difference. I mean, you can bumble in there and take a guess, and you're wrong. What do you do the next day? Right, not or you only can that, sit but back. No, I'm just going to watch, and then the next day move in and kill him right where he was. You know. Right, and that one day that you went in with you know without a whole lot of information, you you likely you know busted up the area you'd really like to be hunting anyway. Right, you know, and, and what you don't know is is it can hurt you. That buck might get up from some place where he could watch you access or you, you know or that kind of thing. You know. Right. So, it, I'm always curious to know, you know, how much information from those observation sets are you trying to gather before you feel comfortable in making a move? You know, because I know that you I know you know just you know, reading your writings and listen, listening to you and watching your videos and stuff that you're, you're fairly aggressive. So how much, you know, data or Intel do you need to feel comfortable making a move? No, I make a move usually right away. Really? Um, I gotta, have, I gotta have the same window. I mean, if you, if you, if you're watching them and they're moving on a West wind, go in there on the, the next day. It's a South wind. It could be a whole different ball game. Right. So you want to see that you're going to have consecutive, similar days right and but their patterns change so fast it might change by the day you go in but you're still better off sitting back and then making a move um uh i probably uh successful in about 25 percent of the moves i make maybe it's 20 maybe it's one out of five one out of four one out of five of the moves that i make from an observation stand to the kill stand I kill the deer. And to some people, it's like, well, you know, you're not even killing them. 
but really, how many hunts have you been on where you got a one in five chance of killing the buck you're after? I would take those odds just about every year. <laughs> you know, me, me personally, it's uh, I would take, I would certainly, uh, certainly take those odds. So you, you mentioned, you know, wind direction, and I think that that's, you know, key, obviously. It's like making sure, you know, you're likely going to get same or similar, I should say, um, movement or reaction or behavior, I guess you could call it, um, if you're using mm-hmm. the same the same wind. So I, one of the questions, you know, do you – are you, to help you kind of identify any of these things, you know, because I know you do a lot of boots-on-the-ground scouting, are you ever using – you know, game cameras to kind of help you determine when to move in for a shot or, or are you strictly using observation sets? And I guess how much do you use game cameras? I do use game cameras. Um, I'm kind of careful about where I use them. A lot of the places I, I hunt are pretty heavy pressured and it would just be missing when I went back out there. Right. So, um, I am hunting, uh, the last couple of years I've been hunting a conservancy where you got to draw for hunts. You, you know, you draw for an area. And that area is pretty safe to have a camera in. And I use cameras there. Um, I take my regular trail cameras and I put them up on high, dry ground around main trails, um, around feeding areas and stuff, and in funnels. And I try to get nighttime pictures of deer moving through so I know where about a big buck is. You know, what? Uh, what's living back here, basically. Like uh, this year, for, for instance... Um, I dropped a couple cameras out and uh, we caught um, about a 145 inch 10 pointer and about maybe half a dozen Pope and Youngs that were a little smaller. Right. You know, um, so um, then, you know, you know, one of the guys spotted this giant out there that was supposedly a 200 incher and, and uh, we dropped a game camera right on his bed. He, he saw it get up from his bed, and I went in there and hunted over the bed. Um, and I, I put a camera in there that emails you a picture. Right. And then I left it alone. And uh, um, then we waited for that buck to come back and hunted that buck. And then at the end of the season, when uh, that buck turned out to not really be real, <laughs> 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 it was a... Uh, it was, uh, like a 160-inch buck. Right, I, I still wouldn't turn um, my nose up at that. <laughs> right, but it was supposedly a 200-incher, and, and, and I was hunting this 200-incher that everybody was seeing. <laughs> right. <laughs> past that buck. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was kind of a little uh, bit of a, uh, a downer. Uh, right. But when I blew all my opportunities because of that, and uh, what happened was that the guy who was giving me all this information got the buck on film. And showed me the footage, and I realized what was going on. Right. So I had a couple of days left. I used that game camera information to run back out to the other end of the swamp, two miles back in, and shoot the other buck, the 145 inch ten. Not a bad consolation for, uh, consolation prize, <laughs> for sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew what was going on in that swamp where I wasn't at the times because of these cameras. But right. I was putting them in places, and this is key, where I'm not going to alarm those bucks. It's up on dry land where those bucks are used to people walking and stuff. And right. I can tell you something else, too. There's a, this young guy that was hunting back there, and he drew September, October, November, gun season, uh, and muzzleloader season, and all I drew was November. So I had three weeks until gun season started. 
I have three weeks to hump factor, and I think I saw from stand probably about seven or eight um, Pope and Young bucks in those three weeks. Nice. That kid saw one Pope and Young buck the whole season, hunting almost every day aggressively. And the only difference was, I mean, a lot of times he was hunting 100 yards from me. He was hunting dry land, and he had a tree stand that was limiting him from hunting in them swamps and stuff where I was. I was hanging over the top of those bedding areas, hanging in those observation spots where I can see into the swamps and then making a move. And I wasn't very far from him at all, and I was seeing bucks constantly. And all I could hear from him is, this is a nursery. All there is is little crap. And I was hardly seeing any little crap. (laughs) What, uh, so... I know that you like to hunt mobile. Are you, do you prefer a climber or do you prefer a, a, a hang on with sticks? What's your preference? Um, I prefer for hunting wise, uh, hang on and sticks. I actually, this year I, uh, I made my own setup. I made my own tree stand. Um, and I made my own sticks to my specs. Um, and I got a, a lightweight, uh, stand at six pounds and I have, uh, some sticks that are, I can't remember what the weight is, but they're they're less than the lone wolf sticks. And I take uh, five out on the back of the stand, and I can get up uh, 20, 25 feet, and the thing's silent. So. And between the milkweed and your stand, I, I think we're going to see Dan Enfold at an ATA next year with the <laughs> with his signature <laughs> signature line. There's a few people urging me to sell his stand, but uh, we'll right. See. Well, we'll hey, see. I, hey, you got a willing uh, prototype tester right here that, that you're talking to, so. <laughs> Um, one of the things I, I wanted to mention or, or, or ask you also is I've also heard you talk about, you know, some of that, you know, mistakes some folks make is that going into an area, doing their scouting, hanging a stand and then bolting out of there and then hanging it to, you know, hanging that set to come in, you know, at a later date to hunt and that you mm-hmm. typically like to go in, hang and hunt the same day. So can you talk about yeah, the old cool off period, <laughs> right? Can you talk about that approach and how that's helped you take mature bucks? Yeah. Uh, if you took away first time sits, you could probably take away half my wall. Wow. Uh, they're that important. Um, that mobile moving in and killing the first day is, is, is important for many reasons. I mean, if a deer smells, you've been there, he's going to change his pattern. He's going to leave. And a lot of guys get, the idea that they can fool a deer's nose because there's a lot of misleading advertising out there. Right. And you cannot fool a deer's nose. They're going to smell you've been there. Less scent, more scent, doesn't matter. They're going to smell that you've been there. It doesn't matter if a little of you was there or a lot of you was there, you were there. And when you get close to a bedding area, it ain't like getting close to, you know, a deer in a woodlot or something. You know, I've had, you know, um, deer walk right across my trail or right up my tracks in a woodlot or something at night or, or where they, they feel okay with it. You get near their bedding area. That's your safe area. That's what they're paranoid about people there. So when they smell you there, they freak out. So you need, um, to get in there without getting smelt. And, and, you know, we try our best to, uh, get some sort of, uh, golden access where you, you know, you know, you got some deadfall or something you hunt up against where they're never going to walk on that side, but you know, they always seem to figure out that you've been there. It's like, yes. they know what goes around on around their bedding area and getting in there and getting it done. The first day is important. I think you damage those bedding areas every time you go in there, even when you scout in spring, 
I think it freaks them out if they you know, they come back and they smell that you've been in there. But they'll forget about it. They'll be okay with it if you're in there once or twice because, you know, a coyote will run through there or whatever. Right. But you certainly don't want to hang out there. And that's another thing that we didn't even talk about is these bedding areas. I, you know, I don't think there's a spot that I've hunted over three times any given year in the last five years. Wow. You so know, that, I know some killer spots. I don't go back to them. You, so, you know, you hunt them once or twice and you're done with them. Right. So let's talk, let's talk you know about what? that. That's a good thing that, to, to dive into. It's, you know, what's your, what's your approach to hunting those, those, those bedding areas? Do you have like a golden number that you won't break that threshold for, for sits and, and how much of a cool off period do you think they need between, between hunts? Once I know a bedding area really well, I usually just hunt once a year. Um, when I know that the bucks are using it. Um, and sometimes I try to monitor from a distance, like from a, uh, observation stand or something before I even go in. But if I don't know a bedding area, I throw th- the three stand rule that we discussed earlier, where right. I throw a stand on an early season, rut and late season, or I'll throw a stand on, on the date I figure for my scouting that they're using it. Like if I think it's a seasonal stand for this time of the year, I'm going in there at that time of the year and see what happens. Right. You know? Okay. So I know that we've we've kept you here just about just about an hour, but before uh, we we let you go, Phil, do you have? Uh, I know we covered a lot of information, but do you have any uh, anything at the uh, top of your mind that you're burning to uh, to ask? Yeah, actually, I've been I've been uh, thinking about this, and I mean, Dan, you you're a monster out there. Like you get out there day in and day out, which is awesome. And I I think Clint and I would both agree when I say you're almost living the dream uh, <laughs> with with the ability to get out that often. Um, but from the perspective of like say, um, somebody you know who's working and really has limited time to get out at all during the season. I know it, it it often depends on what type on what time of the season you're getting out, but let's just say, um, let's just say second season, like after after rifle and kind of like into January. Let's just say like right about now. What what are the three things aside from doing your your topo research? What are the three things that you would tell somebody who literally has maybe one or two days? over the, over the span of two weeks to get out, like what would, what would you tell them to look for in order to, um, to up their odds of a fairly successful hunt? You know, I don't, I don't know about if you get, uh, further South, but up here in the North, um, what I'd be looking for right now at this time of the year, if you, if you just had a few times to get out would be for food sources, you know, at this time of the year. Right. And I, um, I'm still hunting bedding, but, a whole property can be dead if there's no food there. You got to be on the property where the deer are. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, they really, you know, in the north here, they really change in wintertime. You know, um, I think we're closed now. We're either, either our season closed or it's about to. Um, I've been tagged out for a while, so I haven't been paying attention. But, yeah, that's, uh, a, that's a bummer. This time of the year, I actually, <laughs> I actually do pretty well if I, if I have a tag at this time of the year. The deer in wintertime are more patternable than any time, other time of the year. And this is when observation stands really shine because you can see forever and stuff. And those deer are so focused on food that they're bedding close. And you set up and you watch where they come in and stuff. And you look for that vulnerable spot and then you move in for the kill and you know, it's golden and everybody else seems to just bumble in there and mess it up, you know, but. So is that, is that what you, what you would call maybe like a midday move? Like would you set up, observe and then move later before evening? 
I would set up and observe, and usually the deer come out in the evening to stay there till after dark. So the next day I'd come back. And okay. Like I said, at this time of the year, they're real patternable. Right. Um, I think it's with the cold, they got to put on a lot of food or something. They just hit that same food source and same bed every day after day after day, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I actually, yeah, I went out and did uh, over Christmas. I always kind of, you know, I'm lucky work actually closes for the weekend between Christmas and, and New Year's. So I actually get out for a couple of days back at our at our family farm, it's usually when I do a lot of the hunting back there because I'm off and uh, don't have to take any extra time off from work. And I've actually found it to be one of my favorite times. Now, it's after rifle season, so there's been plenty of pressure around, but you're 100% right, Dan. It's like they, they've become a lot more patternable. And the other thing I've noticed, too, is I'm able to kind of see what they've been using all year. You know what I mean? Like if I just pay attention as I'm walking in, I can kind of see, especially if I have a food source, I can kind of see how they're getting to that food source. Um, and that was exactly what I did. And, you know, the guys that hunted that property all year long struggled to see any shooters this year. And I did, um, well, I did three sets over, over Christmas and I saw three shooters. You know, I didn't get anything within range. I was just, (laughs) just slightly outside of getting a shot opportunity. Um, but you know, I, I I guess I kind of hunted smart and I read what, read the sign that I had and figured out where I needed to be. And sure enough, there they, uh, there they were, but I did get busted. That's what kind of blew me up. I, uh, I had a wind that was an off wind, like you were talking about. I did not have my milkweed, so I will blame that. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, if, I guarantee you, it's if I would have had milkweed, that doe uh, that blew up my spot for the rest of the evening, um, she hit a spot where she just came to a dead stop. She was coming, and uh, there was a group of deer the night before and uh, that had a couple bucks and a couple shooters, and uh, I moved my stand um, just a little bit closer after that observation set to get in a little bit closer. And sure enough, here they all came. And, uh, I'm pretty sure my wind was hitting that spot. Cause she came to that one point and just came to a dead stop and just stood there and wouldn't come any further and then didn't spook, but just turned around. And, you know, after about five minutes of kind of checking out the area, turned around and calmly went the other way. And then, uh, I knew it was pretty much done in then at that point, <laughs> but, uh, I know we've kept you here for a little while and, uh, I want to be sensitive to your time, of course, but what I always like to do is kind of end, everything on a uh on a story from uh from our from our guests so like if you wouldn't mind take us on a hunt with with dan enfault and uh you know let us know what your most memorable hunt is it can be a harvest it could be just the you know the one that got away but give us every detail let us know what state you're hunting in and uh give us all the dirt all the way back to the tailgate oh geez i got a million of them i know right (laughs) don't brag sounds like sounds like we might have to have you back on then All right, there's uh, there's one buck that uh, I hunted quite a while back. Uh, it's still my biggest scoring kill. It's in the mid 180s. Um, I saw that buck uh, out glassing on a sleepless night in July. I went out uh, glassing in the middle of the night with a spotlight, which is illegal here. Right. Uh, it's probably not in a lot of places where your listeners are, but uh, I saw this buck. It was just huge from the side of the road in an area where I hunt, and uh, so then, as August got into where it started getting close to September where I could hunt, I was glassed where I thought this thing was coming from. It was all open areas. And I finally was able to find this thing coming out of this little square woodlot. And then I finally went over there and tried to hunt it on opening day, and a whole bunch of people had gotten in there uh, that worked on, the, on a, the farm that had joined it. They saw the tracks and stuff and spooked them out of there. And I ended up having a hard time refining them in that spring. I found his bed, and um, his shed antler was laying right in it. And uh, that bed 
was under a willow tree and it was worn into the ground, but it was a singular bed, which is rare because those big bucks usually bed in areas where there's several beds, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, there wasn't any rubs around or scrapes or anything. So it was a little leery of it, but, uh, that fall, uh, I could get into a position in a tree where I could actually glass into that bed and I could see the buck in that bed several times. And I started watching and paying attention. And every time it was a West wind, that buck was in that bed, but it was a really open area, grassy, um, wet, and you couldn't get close. And there's no trees around, you know, there's just sparse willow trees and a tree here or there. So I was sitting way back and you couldn't get this thing to move far enough. And I played cat and mouse with him all year. And the next year he was back in that same bed. And almost every time there's a west wind, he'd be in there. And it was driving me nuts all season watching this thing. And uh, I had this idea that what if the wind would change, you know? And I was waiting for the wind to change while he was bedded there because it's really so far to go to get to another bedding area. I mean, it was just open grass and stuff that I didn't think this this deer in that area would get up in broad daylight and walk that kind of distance. And it was Thanksgiving Day at like 10 or 11 in the morning. The wind changed it at 180. It was coming out of the east as the front moved in. And uh, I grabbed my shotgun. It was was, uh, gun season. And I strapped that thing to my back with bungee cords. (laughs) And I crawled up to that thing's bed with a little patch of cattails in front of me uh, on my hands and knees, not even knowing for sure if he was there. And when I got to 25 yards from the bed... I unbunched the shotgun and uh, rose up to my knees and found myself staring at this thing eyeball to eyeball <laughs> and shot him right in his bed. And I thought that was, even though it's a gun kill, um, that was one of my most memorable hunts. Man, that's uh, some some guerrilla tactics right there. I, I, I like that one. I would probably put that one up there as uh, as one of my favorite too because how often do you, I mean, how hard hard is it to even just do a stock just in general, right? Um, but yeah. me, personally, I think the bungee cord actually makes the story. <laughs> you, you know what? You know, I never had the confidence before that to ever stalk him with the bow. Right. But where I stalked it with that shotgun was easy bow range. And wow. I was thinking, I could have did this any time during the year. You, you know, that, that started to hit me as, as you know, maybe I got to be more confident with the, you, you know, with the bow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. I mean, with that, with that stock move you put on, I mean, you, as close as you got, you definitely had an opportunity with the, with the bow, but hey Dan, right now I'm, I'm looking at a picture of that 180 buck. Well played, sir. Well played. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so Dan, I just want to say thanks for 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 coming on and spending some some time with us. As I'd mentioned, I'd been looking forward to it. I know we've been you know uh, I am in back and forth on Facebook and stuff like that, trying to get some time together. I I do uh, appreciate you coming on. But before we let you go, is there anything you want to mention anywhere anyone can find more information about Dan Enfalt and some of the uh, some of the information you have? Any place online you'd like to direct people? Yeah, they should probably come to my website uh, huntbeast.com. It's a forum where we discuss tactics in detail and stuff. And there's some really good um, stuff on there, some information and stuff for people looking for that kind of thing. And and I also sell videos that uh, are, are not like hunting videos. They're uh, tactical videos on, on how to do what we're doing and, you know, shows how to uh, read maps and all that kind of stuff. And, and they're terrain-based, so, like, I have one about swamp hunting, one about hill hunting, and, and so forth. 
Yeah, I uh, I, I would recommend anyone out there listening to, to cruise over to your site and, and check it out. It's one of those places where, um, you know, that I find refreshing to go visit. One, because everyone there is, is I mean, they're diehards um, that, that, that follow you. And the folks who are actually on the forum as well are super knowledgeable. You know what I mean? So it's like you can actually go there and have a conversation with just the people who are on there chatting. And those folks have a ton of information to share as well as some very experienced and knowledgeable hunters to interact with. So I absolutely suggest everyone cruise over there. Also, I'll place all the, uh, the details of, uh, how you can find, uh, Dan, you know, on, on social media and, and, uh, and the, uh, the website and the blog post show notes as well. But, uh, Dan, thanks for your time. I do appreciate you hopping on and I'll, uh, I'll let you go ahead and get going back to your, your, uh, the rest of your evening, but thank you. Thanks guys. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. We'd just like to thank Dan for joining us. Uh, be sure to head over to his website, huntingbeast.com, and check out all the content that is there, his DVDs uh, that he has for sale. And make sure to check out the forum. There's a ton of great information there, a bunch of great people who follow Dan that are able to also provide you know great hunting information, strategies, and, and, and so forth. So do yourself a favor and check that out. Also want to make sure that we thank our partners at Exodus Outdoor Gear and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And also want to thank all of you who are tuning in every other week to listen to us talk deer hunting. We're very much appreciative of that. If you're enjoying the content that we're putting out there, be sure to leave us a five-star iTunes rating. We'd be very much appreciative of that as well. Uh, If you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, uh, you can find us and subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, and then of course you can find us also on Google Play. And until next time, we'll see you all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.